0: Welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds, by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I will be your host on this journey through movies that I just feel need a little more love in the world. Uh, my movie today is going to be an especially fun one because we're talking about a movie that was actually a fairly big hit at the time, but it's uh, there's so many interesting things going on with this movie that I just wanted to do a show about it and just bring up some of the stuff that's going on that a lot of people might not know about. Uh, the movie is 1983, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd comedy called Trading Places, one of the biggest movies of 1983. Not historically a movie you think about when you think of Eddie Murphy, he had other movies that were bigger, but it is one that I do think is really interesting and will be really fun to talk about. And my guest today is an equally fun uh, aspect of this show. Uh, let's see, she is a uh, an attorney, she is a college professor, she is a uh, reality TV alumnus, very well-spoken, very interesting and fun person to talk to, and I'm so excited to bring on the show.
1: Welcome, Cass McQuillan. Hey, thanks for having me, Mario. I'm excited to do this one. This this is a good movie for me. Yeah, this Cass is actually the person who turned me
0: on to this movie for a possible Staff Picks episode, and I, I want to lead right off with that, because you have told me before this movie is very important to your life. Can you kind of uh,
1: explain that to people, kind of give your history, who you are, and why this is a big movie to you? So for me, this is traditionally our family Christmas movie. And that story goes back to, I think, around Christmas 1984. I would have been in sixth grade. Um, and we got a VCR. It was the first year we got a VCR. And my parents, being procrastinators, went and got the VCR. And when they went to get the VCR, they realized we had no videotapes. So they bought the only two videos that were available, and it was Trading Places and Uncommon Valor. Uh, which is a kind of a war movie and, and not that happy. We popped in Uncommon Valor and it was just, you know, not great for my stepdad. It was a Vietnam vet. So that one went out the window. So we own this VCR and one movie, Trading Places, and we watched it on Christmas. And every year from then on, we watched it every Christmas. Um, and mind you, I was in sixth grade, so I was probably, what, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And this movie is rated R and an R rated movie in the. 80s, you know, was a little unadulterated. (laughs) So, uh, so I just grew up watching this every year. And then when I, I took the VCR and the video with me when I left home and, uh, have watched it ever since. And now I have, of course, the looking good, feeling good edition on Blu-ray.
0: So to this day, you still watch this every year on Christmas?
1: Yes, it is actually kept in my Christmas movie box along with Rudolph and, and other (laughs) such movies. And my husband and my and my daughter's seen it. Everybody's seen it. Uh, maybe it's a weird quirk, but I know so many lines in it, you know, and it's just been something I have done since sixth grade every year. So I was going to say,
0: as most families are gathered around at Christmas watching like It's a Wonderful Life or A Christmas Story, you're watching Eddie Murphy drop motherfuckers.
1: Yeah, and I'm seeing Jamie Lee Curtis's boobs. It's wonderful.
0: <laughs> That's great. It's, it's funny because your history with this movie is so much different than mine, and I've mentioned it before that when I was a kid, my parents would not let me watch R rated movies. And chief among that list was Eddie Murphy movies. My parents had such a bug up their butt about Eddie Murphy that there was nothing that he did was ever going to be allowed in my house. So when you mentioned you wanted to watch Trading Places, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. And then I quickly have to go watch it because I've never seen it before. I. I, I have such a black hole in my movie knowledge of the 80s in that I just was not allowed to see Eddie Murphy movies. And it's funny because I can pinpoint the moment that happened that I was a big Saturday Night Live fan. You know, were you an SNL fan in the 80s?
1: No, never. I've never really been an SNL fan. I mean, I don't watch it regularly. I usually had things to do on Saturdays.
0: See, luckily I was a nerd, so I had nothing to do on a Saturday, <laughs> but, but I loved SNL and Eddie Murphy, you know, he was from SNL, right? That he was like the biggest star in the history of the show.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, all these guys, a lot of people in this movie were on SNL, yeah, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We'll get to that in, in, later in the show. But yeah, it's, but, yeah, Eddie Murphy, the biggest SNL star probably of all time, and he just dominated everything in the early 80s. And I had a friend who used to tape SNL and bring it over to my house and show me the sketches. And my parents were not thrilled about that, but they'd maybe let, let it slide if it was like the original cast. But when Eddie Murphy showed up and my friends started doing this, and this is 1982 or 83, so I'm eight years old, and there was a sketch called Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. And Eddie Murphy in that sketch was explaining how babies are made. And he said, Well, the man and the woman go in the back of a car and the man gives the woman five dollars. And my parents were like, No and that, that was the minute the SNL was shut off and it was banned from my house and Eddie Murphy was never to make an appearance again. So it's not quite the beloved family classic in my house as it would have been in yours.
1: <laughs> yeah, my, my family was a little twisted. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so I I caught up on Eddie Murphy movies later, and this one I just watched for the first time maybe a month ago, and I really enjoyed it, and I've watched it a couple times since, so I am probably not up to your level of expertise yet, but I'm more than happy to join with you in the discussion, because it is a very fun movie that I I think everyone should know about, unlike me, through most of my life.
1: I suggest introducing it when your child is about 10. (laughs) Makes a great family movie, I mean... We don't need any more of that claymation stuff. Let's go right to the Eddie Murphy, Dana Aykroyd.
0: Yeah, no more wiggles. Let's go straight to the 48 Hours.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so. Yeah, although in its defense, this is probably one of the more tame of the Eddie Murphy movies. There's other ones he was far more profane than this one.
1: Well, I think this one was us- was originally, they were expecting Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, right? Correct. To do yeah, it. I just read that. So, yeah, and that, that my... Mother was a huge Gene Wilder Richard Pryor fan. So we watched all the, you know, Silver Streak and all the those movies a lot too. So I think this one ties into that for my family history. Okay. And that makes sense. Yeah, for people who don't know Richard
0: Pryor, the, one of the biggest stand up comedians of his era, and then Eddie Murphy was the next big one after that, and everyone kind of thought he was going to be the next Richard Pryor. And what would happen in this movie this is a movie about two people who switch places. You have this rich, foppish white accountant and this uh, black street hustler, and their lives get switched, and they have to take over each other's lives. It was written for Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor, and then Richard Pryor had to bail. And what happens is they brought in Eddie Murphy. He was the big new star on SNL at the time. And so it was going to be Gene Wilder and Eddie Murphy. And Eddie's like, I don't want to do stuff that makes it look like I'm taking over for Richard Pryor. I want to do my own thing. So that's how it became Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. And uh, am I missing anything there? I think that's pretty much the history.
1: Oh, and to further tie in my Christmas link to this, I actually met Dan Aykroyd at a Christmas party while I was bringing reindeer to it when my in my family reindeer business. And I met him at a Christmas party in Malibu. <laughs> explain that to people. Yeah. Explain to the, people the reindeer history of your family.
0: I think that would be interesting.
1: So my family uh, has the largest herd of reindeer in the state of California. And their primary business is to take reindeer to rich people's homes and parties and to do TV commercials or movie shots with these reindeer. Um, so we would go to all these crazy parties um, and take a couple of reindeer and they'd pay like $5,000 for two hours to stand there with reindeer. Uh, and one of the biggest parties in Malibu, every, it was every other year. It was the guy who did Paul Mitchell, uh, John Paul DeJorio. He had a huge party in the biggest house in Malibu and Dan Aykroyd would go there every year. And I gotta say when he would walk, tons of celebrities were there. Uh, when he walked into the room, he was a presence. Mm-hmm. He, he was someone you would stop and look at. Um, which I wouldn't have expected prior to meeting him. But very charismatic, and just that sense, that presence he had, was, of all the people I've met in the reindeer years, he was one that really stuck with me. So another reason, I mean, that was many years after this became the family Christmas movie. uh, But still, Christmas party, same Christmas party I also met Ricky Schroeder at, by the way.
0: (laughs) Now, uh, I guess we're going to spill that. He is your all-time crush, Ricky Schroeder, correct?
1: Yes. And he's he's divorced now, so...
0: Well, there you go. Okay. Well, hopefully he's a listener. I'm not sure. My listener, I I have maybe upwards of 10, 20 listeners, so maybe he's included in there somewhere.
1: Yeah, I don't know if he could handle the annual Trading Places viewing for Christmas.
0: (laughs) It just struck me that your parents, in essence, were reindeer pimps, that people would pay pay them large sums of money to bring their their, uh, reindeer to the party. I mean, in a way, they're almost pimps.
1: Yeah. I mean, they're... Well yeah, I guess anybody who does that with an animal is, is a pimp of an animal. That's lovely. Okay, so <laughs> let's
0: talk about this for a second. So yeah, so you have Eddie Murphy in this movie and again, Eddie Murphy was the biggest star on TV at the time. He came off SNL, he did the movie 48 Hours, he became a big star because of that, then he did uh, Trading Places, this is his second movie, and it's just amazing to think what he was pulling off, he was like 20, 21 years old or something like that, and he did, not only was a full-time cast member on SNL, he did 48 Hours and Trading Places that same year as he was a cast member on SNL. Just an insane start to his career. Then you had Dan Aykroyd in here, and and Aykroyd, I'm glad that you're speaking glowing of of him because he's one of those guys, he was in a ton of movies in the 80s, and I just never really thought he was that funny in anything in the 80s. I mean, Ghostbusters is a big one, but I never thought he's the star of that. He's just the other guy. But it's like, it wasn't until I saw this movie that I really realized that there were movies that he was pretty good in
1: are there any of that i'm not really thinking of i think part of his weirdness as an actor is he doesn't have like the leading man good looks and his sense of humor is so dry and he's just deadpan so i think he's a tough one you know I, what was that movie uh with macaulay culkin like that got stung of a brown-eyed girl or something my
0: girl he was
1: in my girl I, i'm embarrassed to know that i knew that off the top of my head yeah you know, he has such a, a variety of roles he played. I don't know all his movies because, like I said, this was the uh, Christmas movie. That's why I have this affinity for the movie.
0: Yeah, it was. he was in like every movie in the 80s. He was always kind of the, I mean, he did quirky stuff, but he was never really a standout. And it wasn't until years later that I saw his original stuff on SNL from the 70s and I realized how good he was. And I think you're right that he's not really a leading man, and that's why he never stands out in movies because he's like a character actor. He's good at getting into characters and playing different characters, but to sustain one character through a movie isn't really what he's best at.
1: Yeah, I would agree there. Wasn't he a Conehead? Was he one of the Coneheads? He was.
0: He was him and Jane Curtin and then Lorraine Newman as their daughter.
1: Yes, okay.
0: Why I think he really stands out in this movie, and that's something I just noticed when I was watching it today, is that... It's interesting because Eddie Murphy, we see in later movies, he likes to play multiple characters in a movie. That's his thing. He likes to disappear into characters. And then Dan Aykroyd actually gets to do that too in this movie. He plays, I think, three different characters, if you think poor version of Winthrop Thorpe, the rich version, and then uh, the Rastafarian guy at the end. So it, it kind of plays to both of their strengths as SNL guys that throughout the movie they get to play different variants of the same person.
1: Yeah, I think it's a great vehicle for everyone, really. I mean, the casting was really good on this. And you
0: have already mentioned Jamie Lee Curtis's breasts, so you've beat me to the punch there. And I was going to say they are really stars number three and four of this movie, that you see a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie.
1: Yeah, and she was young. She was, what, 24, 23 when she did the movie? Mm -hmm. And it was was her first role after all her horror roles, really, to show that she could act. So. I really enjoy her in this role. I like her character, and I like her as the character.
0: Yeah, and that's the, the three things I really wanted I really wanted in my notes to go over in this movie is that, A, this is one of the moments when Eddie Murphy was like the biggest thing in the world, and he just ruled Hollywood, and then you have this movie where I, I actually enjoyed Dan Aykroyd because it's one of the movies that actually plays to his strengths, and then the third one is the Jamie Lee Curtis thing, and that is that is that I've seen her in interviews talking about this movie, like you, you kind of undersold her there that she was just known for horror movies, but a lot of people don't know, and I wasn't aware of this either, that without Trading Places, there would not be a Jamie Lee Curtis movie star. Like, she was a horror movie actress, she did B movies, and it was expected that is all she would ever be. She was just the scream queen, and they had to lobby really hard to get her into this movie, and she has, I mean, for years in interviews, given credit to this movie, this is the movie that people took me seriously as an actress, so it was a big deal that Jamie Lee Curtis was even cast in this in the first place.
1: Well, I did not know that.
0: Yeah. It's, it it was a huge jump to legitimacy for her. And that's that. And that's the thing. And she, she ended up being in a bunch of my favorite movies. True lies is one of my favorite movies of all time. A fish called Wanda is maybe my all time favorite comedy. So those don't happen without trading places and some studio actually giving her a chance as an A-list actress. So that's, that's the biggest thing I think that I wanted to take from this movie.
1: Yeah. And it was a great, I mean, the, this movie has so much going on in it, like just social commentary, everything. Everybody, those main characters, there's so much little tidbits going on in the 80s. It's it's so great with the racial stuff, the sexist stuff. It's it's fascinating when you watch it, not as a Christmas movie. <laughs> and the blackface. Don't forget the blackface. The blackface. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the use of the N-word, It just from Don Amici, of all people. <laughs> Yeah, we'll we'll walk
0: through the plot here for people who haven't seen it. I'm assuming most of my listeners will have seen this movie, so we don't have to go into too much of a deep dive of the plot. But yeah, it is kind of astounding, the stuff that is dropped in this movie. And I, I remember reading that Don Amici, for people who don't know, very respected old-time actor, was in a ton of movies, then kind of took a break in the 70s, and then this was like his big comeback. But yeah, in this movie, he not only drops a hard N-word, but he also says an F-word, which apparently was the first time he'd ever done that in a movie. So there's barriers are being broken down left and right in Trading Places.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's a good one. I think everybody should watch it.
0: Okay, before we go into the plot of the movie, I know you had told me before that one of the reasons why you watch this movie as a family is that it kind of
1: paralleled your life or something like that about fortunes and stuff. It it does. I, I don't see that. It. Well, I mean, I didn't trade places with anyone, but uh, I think anyone who's gone from being a uh, lower income to being higher income can relate to this. And just the Eddie Murphy persona when he's in that, when he walks in the house and he's trying to steal things or he can't, you know, he's just not believing any of this. Uh, but I don't think it really parallels my life too much. I definitely would identify with Eddie Murphy's character more,
0: because you were you were a street hustler.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean I got into some trouble as a kid, and I I wasn't in jail with the uh, the two guys going yeah. but you know <laughs> I did did have my own incarceration period as a minor.
0: Oh, good. I won't ask about that, but it's good to know. I have that a hold over you now.
1: Well, I just said it publicly, so
0: <laughs> yeah. all my all my 20 listeners now have this insider information <laughs> about Cass's life. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, but no, I, I don't think I had any parallels, really.
0: OK, we're going to go into the plot of the movie here. But basically, yeah, just to summarize, it's a movie about people that literally trade places. It's kind of a modern a parallel to like the, the Prince and the Pauper, which was a Mark Twain story. It's kind of a, like a stage play Pygmalion. Is there anything else? I know there's other literary stuff that it's kind of – it kind of revolves around the same concept where people switch lives and it's all about nature versus nurture, which is more important. Is there anything else that you can think of that this is kind of similar to?
1: Uh, Well, I guess The Prince and the Pauper was the big one, and then uh, what was the opera they're playing the music of at the beginning? Uh, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. I can't remember. I mean the soundtrack to this is fantastic too if you like – Opera, yeah. A lot of opera music. It is, it is, but it's from that opera. I just read this on Wikipedia when I was trying to learn you know, more about this.
0: <laughs> yeah, I will say this is going to be a fun one for me to do an episode of, because if, the, if there's three things I don't know much about, it's A, Eddie Murphy movies, B, opera, and three, how the New York Stock Exchange works. So this will be a fun little thing. Th- I hope you understand the ending of this movie and you can explain it to me.
1: I listened to a podcast from Planet Money they did on this movie and interpreting it it's just today, so I would be able to answer that question. Excellent. What fortuitous timing. So the Marriage of Figaro is the opera. That's the opera. Okay. Yes. For all the opera listeners out there.
0: There, there should be a huge crossover between opera lovers and Eddie Murphy fans.
1: And frozen concentrated orange juice traders. <laughs> yes okay so we're gonna dive into this movie here again it's basically
0: it's a movie set in Philadelphia it opens in this really neat little montage of all these Philadelphia moments have you have you been to Philadelphia are you familiar with that city I have not been to
1: Philadelphia I mean I've been there every Christmas through this movie (laughs) yes
0: every every the McQuillan family every Christmas is whisked away to beautiful snowy Philadelphia
1: yeah Uh, I have not been there, but I imagine if you have been there or are from there, it's pretty neat to watch all the landmarks being flashed through in that opening montage.
0: Yeah, it's and again, I've only been there twice. I know they go through the Italian market. That's where they film the Rocky movies where Rocky jogs down the street. They have that in the movie. The Rocky statue makes an appearance. They have Independence Hall. So, yeah, it's really kind of neat. It's a neat little montage of all these Philly landmarks. And we basically go to a... uh, we start with a a man named Louis Winthorpe, Winthorpe right? Thropper Thorpe, Thorpe. Louis Louis Winthorpe III. Yes, and this is Dan Aykroyd playing the biggest fop, just this rich white accountant. He just uh, lives in luxury. He's got a butler. He's got a rich girlfriend, Miss Penelope. And basically, he is a uh, is he a day trader or just a commodities trader? What would he be?
1: He's a commodities trader, um, and he. Uh, the opening montage they have uh coleman making fresh squeezed orange juice for him which i thought was pretty cool if there's all these references at the beginning that tie back in to the ending there's a lot of if you watch it over and over you'll see these things so at the very beginning in that montage the first time we meet coleman he's squeezing uh oranges to make fresh juice for him to serve in bed there you go
0: that's excellent piece of trivia i did not catch that so yeah uh, oranges will become popular uh will become important in this movie pork bellies it's a movie about food commodities about this rich brokerage the duke brothers the uh, uh what are their names uh randolph and mortimer duke these two old guys they own this brokerage firm and they basically buy and sell food commodities and winthrop god i'm gonna miss that i'm gonna screw that up every time Winthrop is their number one flunky so yeah it's just all this rich white money based around uh food uh commodities and that's really this this world that we're living in this movie
1: yeah, and how about those old computer mon- monitors in the car? Like they're in the they're in the Rolls Royce, and there's these two analog tiny screens, as if they have connectivity. Yes,
0: yeah. For those of you who, who enjoy watching 1980s computer technology, watch this movie. the The most ridiculous looking computers.
1: <laughs> it's it's pretty. Re- yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm just reliving the opening montage in my head. So.
0: Of course, we're, we're pretending it's like Christmas. You're reliving, reliving your family's Christmas
1: here. Yeah, yeah, I'm just sitting down with my cocoa. I'm excited.
0: <laughs> Do you hear that sound on the roof? That's Winthrop.
1: Thorpe. God damn it why don't you just call him louie
0: louie so yeah so so you got these rich guys and uh these two rich guys that run the company these are don amici and ralph bellamy and they basically have this running thing like a competition through their life where they're always betting things they're making bets against one another and you get the sense this has been going on their entire life and they'll always do it for a dollar every bets for a dollar and one day they're reading a uh a magazine, a science magazine, and there's a thing in there about nature versus nurture or hereditary versus environment, basically what causes a person to be what they are. Is it the way they're born? Is it their genes? Or is it their environment? And they get in a little debate if this is actually a thing, which one's more important. And this is going to be the whole premise of the movie in that they're going to take Winthorpe, their their little uh, flunky, their uh, commodities expert, and they're going to try to switch him with this random street hustler, this black guy named... What is his name? Billy Ray Valentine that they just see just a a blind, <laughs> handicapped street hustler. And they're going to try to switch, have them switch places and see if their lives will turn out the same way. And that's really the comedy of the movie and where it's all going to go.
1: Yeah. And we have good character de- development for uh, Randolph and Mortimer when they're, you know, when they're giving the tip to their servant at the beginning. To the butler, yes. Yeah, it's uh yeah, the butler. (laughs) When they're giving the tip to the butler at the beginning, uh and they give him five dollars and he says, Thank you, I'll go to the movies by myself. That that's also one of our whenever someone borrows money in our family, someone always says that line. Like, Thank you, I'll go to the movies by myself.
0: Yeah. For people who don't know that scene, there's this little, uh, like a black butler. And and these guys, um, Randolph and Mortimer, are just such assholes and so cheap. They just will not pay anybody anything. So, yeah, they they tip their butler $5 as his Christmas bonus. And that's his little sarcastic response, which later becomes, I I hear the McQuillan uh, exclamation of joy over a gift well-received.
1: Yeah. And then someone will say, half of it is for me.
0: So, you know, yeah.
1: I mean, you can use so many lines from this movie in your life.
0: If I had tried to use them in my life, my parents would have kicked me out of the house. That's the problem.
1: Well, I don't know how you grew up, but it wasn't as fun as mine. (laughs) Yes, I I have no
0: doubt about that.
1: So, yeah, they're going to get into this. You've got Randolph who believes in uh, nurture and uh, Mortimer believes in nature. You know, it's in the blood versus we can change people by their environment. So that's their big argument and their $1 bet.
0: And I guess we're kind of skipping over our introduction to Eddie Murphy here. And it's funny, I'm reading some old reviews of Trading Places, and it, it cannot be stated enough what a big presence Eddie Murphy was at that time. Just he would show up on screen, he would take it over. That's what he did on Saturday Night Live. That's what he does in every movie. And in this movie, I mean, the minute he shows up, you start laughing. He's just this this little street hustler. He's like pretending he's handicapped. He's rolling around in a cart like he has no legs. He's got the, the big glasses on like he's blind. He's doing the Stevie Wonder thing where he tilts his head from side to side. And again, the minute Eddie Murphy starts talking as this fast-talking hustler, you just laugh because he's so good at getting into these characters. And that's the thing. He's just like he's, he's such a, he's a little slime ball just robbing people for money. And that's why it's going to be funny that he's going to be thrust into this world of, you know, the rich white aristocracy where he's a day trader. And so, yeah, so what happens here? Eddie Murphy gets arrested at one point. And that's how the bet, bet happens, I think.
1: Well, what happens is he's pretending to be disabled. He, like, grabs a lady's skirt trying to pick up on her. These cops see him. They come by and pick him up, and, he, you know, he does the whole, like, I can see, I can see, oh, I can see I have legs scene. <laughs> and then he gets up and walks away, and he's walking past where uh, Louie's coming in the building or coming out of the building with the, the paychecks. And he bumps into Louie. And ends up grabbing this, the briefcase that has the payroll in it. And Louie freaks out in a prissy way, you know, take everything, take my money. And he, and Eddie Murphy's, you know, Billy Ray's trying to give him back the suitcase and he's just going crazy, Louie. And he's calling the police. And of course the police come. And then he runs into the Duke and Duke building, Billy Ray, Eddie Murphy runs in there and proceeds to be chased around, uh, you know, the good old boys club there jumping on tables And then, of course, we get the scene where he pops out from under the table and puts his hands up and all these police put their guns in his face. And he says, is there a problem, officer? (laughs) And um, then he's taken to jail. And that's when the Duke brothers see this and say, I bet I could take that guy and trade places with Louis and test our theory.
0: Yeah, for years I had seen that that image—the image people may know it of Eddie Murphy laying on the floor and all these guns being pointed at his face—I didn't know what movie that was from for the longest time, and it's, it's just a hilarious image. In this one, he's he's running around this Duke Club and he he falls down on the ground. And all the cops run after him and point this gun in Eddie Murphy's face, and he's like, like like twenty guns pointed at his face. He just gets this big old Eddie Murphy grin and goes, Is "There, a problem officers." Yeah. You know, as a lawyer, you may like the next scene. Right after that, there's a scene where, where uh, Murphy's like, no, you guys, you framed me. I didn't steal anybody's briefcase. And he's like, is there a lawyer in this building to defend me? And oh, like yeah. every single person, person in there is a lawyer. And they're all like, and they're all like clearing their throats.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's so many great little moments in the movie. But yeah, that one always makes me laugh.
0: Okay, yeah. So, so yeah. Billy Ray Eddie Murphy ends up in jail. He's been accused of stealing a, a briefcase, and basically in there, he's he's a big talker. He's talking about how, you know, I'm a I, I I fought the cops and I did this and blah blah blah. And it's it's this big moment of Eddie Murphy just being a big talker and bragging to everyone that he's this rich pimp and he makes all this money. He's got a limo, and it's funny because there's these two disbelieving guys in there that we'll see throughout the movie. These two, as Eddie Murphy says, he's a Barry White looking motherfucker, if I recall. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, <that's> just <laughs> Eddie Murphy just doing his thing, just this fast-talking guy in prison, and these guys don't believe him. So then he gets bailed out by the Dukes, and the Dukes are like, "Well, we're gonna give you a job and a home, and and we'll give you a and give you a car." And Eddie Murphy's like, yeah, uh, "Am I skipping over anything important here? I'm, I hope I'm, I'm not uh, shortchanging this part."
1: I don't know. I thought the jail scene was great, and you know who's in jail with him? Uh, I can't. Let me look up my thing right here. Some very famous people, are, you know, are in this movie. At a young age. And that guy who plays, he's in Westworld. You may know him.
0: It's one of the other guys next to Eddie in the, in the corner, right?
1: Yeah. One of the younger guys, not one of the big yeah, guys is uh, what is his name? Giancarlo something. OK, so that's that guy's famous now. Yeah, he just he's one like Giancarlo Esposito. He plays cellmate number two, but he's gone on to be uh, a, an award winning actor. Uh, but he's probably a 22-year-old guy, just you know, in there playing. Uh, he's been in, he's in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. He's won Best Supporting Actor, all this stuff.
0: Wow, that was like 30 years before that.
1: Yeah, and he's come into his own there. Um, and then the the booking, or no, that's later in the movie. So, but yeah, the the jail scene is great. That's when he's explaining how he's a karate guy and he has the Court of Blood technique, <laughs> and he, he can cut you, and he's like Bruce Lee. So,
0: yeah, (laughs) I will say for some Eddie Murphy trivia here, people may know this, that Eddie Murphy for years had an entourage of just all these other friends and stuff that were in all his stuff. And one of his buddies here is in uh, this scene as well. It's not frightened inmate number two. It's the other guy. It's the guy in the do rag. There's an actor named Clint Smith. He's the the black guy in the do rag. He's in like every Eddie Murphy movie, and he was on SNL. He's in all sorts of SNL sketches. Eddie would always make them put him in sketches and stuff. He was like one of Eddie's little sidekicks. You can see him in this movie. His name is Clint Smith. Oh, well, I wonder if John uh,
1: Carlo was one of those, and that's how he got his start. Oh, that would be cool. We'll have to we'll we'll have to tweet to him. Maybe we'll ask. Oh, okay, there you go. And the other great thing to come out of that jail scene is when the big guy says, "It ain't cool being no jive turkey so close to Thanksgiving."
0: Is that something you say in your family as well?
1: That That is yet another, yes. I'm now realizing my whole life is centered around this movie.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I, I, I please, I would like to know, this year around the Thanksgiving table, please call someone a jive turkey and whip out that line.
1: I whip it. it it's always out every Thanksgiving. So, yeah.
0: Is it to your daughter? You say it to your daughter?
1: I say it to anyone who will listen. <laughs> There's a lot of jive turkeys in my life. Well,
0: maybe you met them in prison.
1: That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay.
0: So, yeah, so the Dukes come and they bail this little street hustler out of prison. And they're like, uh, they give him all this stuff and they give him whiskey and they give him a box of cigars. And Eddie Murphy's first question is, I will phrase this in a very delicate way. He says, are those two men perhaps homosexuals? (laughs) He says it in a little different way, but that is his first concern.
1: Yes, he is worried about that because Don Amici's you know, showing whiskey, you know, trying to lure him into the car. But he does ask the driver. I I won't say it, but uh, these dudes, a couple of homosexuals.
0: Yes, they are bundles of
1: sticks. Yes.
0: So. Yeah. It, just one of my under, just, I, again, I've only seen this movie a couple times. I'm not on first name basis with it like Cass is. But yeah, the scene where Eddie Murphy's being propositioned by these old white dudes and Eddie's only plan of attack is to lean forward and ask the black limo driver, what's my move
1: here? And the black limo driver says nothing. He's just all facial expressions. <laughs> yeah. That is great. That is a very nice, understated scene there. And then Eddie Murphy's like, thanks for your help. <laughs>
0: Yeah, so basically, so they, they give Eddie Murphy this job and a, and a new life, and all of a sudden they're going to take this guy who has nothing, he's just a, a little common street hustler, they give him, move him into the most incredible life of luxury, and at the same time, this bet requires their their right-hand man, Winthorpe, they're going to take everything away from him, they're basically going to turn him into a homeless street hustler, so yeah, they frame him for embezzling money, they uh, plant drugs on him, and just this <laughs> horrible downfall that Dan Aykroyd will take a, almost immediately. To the point he ends up in prison. It's funny the same prison that Eddie Murphy was walking out of yesterday, it, within the next 10 minutes in this movie, now Dan Aykroyd's Winthorpe character is now in prison. Dan, and clearly, this is a a place he has not ever been before, and this leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie, where his girlfriend uh, his girlfriend comes and, and pulls him out of prison. If, if I recall, she bails him out of prison, and Aykroyd comes walking out. He's like, those men in there were wanted to have sex with me.
1: He's so good at he's so good at playing the prude. But that whole his whole framing, my one one of my problems with that is it's only one hundred and fifty dollars that they plant on him, and he's so rich. Why would he steal one hundred and fifty dollars?
0: That's true. There's probably some kind of legal precedent there as well, as I would think as a as an attorney. You would know that perhaps they're overreacting to his crime here.
1: It is possible. I don't even know if that would be like a felony theft. Yeah. So, but then they find the P C P as well that's been planted, and the guy who books him. Uh, that's Frank Oz, the voice of Yoda. That's
0: Yoda that books him?
1: Yeah, the guy with the glasses at the table who who says Winthorpe the Third. That's wow. that's actually a famous puppeteer from the Muppets. He was played the voices of all these people and he is the voice of Yoda. Mm,
0: drugs have you.
1: And he he originated that speech pattern for Yoda. <laughs> okay. so.
0: Well there you go. So we had some uh, Star Wars trivia.
1: Yes, Star Wars trivia. Sorry. Thought you would
0: enjoy that. No, that's good. That's yeah. We got the SNL tie in. We got the star Wars stuff. There's all sorts of fun stuff moving and going on here. Okay. So, so Eddie Murphy, Billy Ray has been elevated to the position of rich fop. And we got uh, Dan Aykroyd has been lowered to the position of homeless street urchin. And this is where we're going to meet the third character in the movie. Ophelia played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who's basically a hooker that basically they hire to go frame Dan Aykroyd where, where uh, when he's getting out of prison, she's a she's a prostitute. They pay her to go up there and pretend that she has a, a history with him. And so basically then Winthorpe's girlfriend dumps him, too. And this is the last straw that Winthorpe is now basically homeless, and he will be wind up living in Ophelia's house as a, a prostitute's guest, which is about the lowest place I think one could imagine.
1: Well, he did have soft hands, so she took pity on him. <laughs> she did. And all those credit cards. Yeah, I mean, she... She has the heart of gold, right? She's the prostitute with the heart of gold. So she takes him in and uh, miraculously, like he gets a fever and then she crawls into bed with him. That's when we get the gratuitous boob scene.
0: Yeah. There are a lot of, a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis boob. We're not overestimating that. I mean, we're not, we're not over-exaggerating. There's a lot.
1: Yeah. And I watched the extra stuff on the DVD and they, she told the costume designer and they agreed that they should just exploit her body you know, hmm. and use it. So they really made everything very provocative for her. And she was all in on that.
0: Yeah. Jamie, she's an interesting person. Some of the roles she has been in over the years, people know, know her now is like this very well respected. She's an author. She writes children's books. She's married to Christopher guest, very well respected, but yeah, she was absolutely the B movie scream queen for a long time there. And then that doesn't surprise me at all that she told him to just go for it. In fact, have you, you, are you familiar with the movie Halloween?
1: No, I don't watch scary movies. Okay,
0: yeah. She was in the original Halloween, and she plays like the goody-goody girl. All her friends in the movie are out having sex and hooking up with boyfriends and, and smoking and stuff, and she doesn't do that. And she, I've read interviews that said she hated that because she was the wildest one of them all, but she had to play the goody-two-shoes in the movie, and that she hated that. To this day, she hates that she's the goody-two-shoes in that movie because she doesn't get to have any fun.
1: Oh, well, her sister is in Trading Places as Muffy. <laughs> one of the the country club girls playing a goody two-shoe.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I do love the language in this movie. When you get to the country clubs and when you're with the Dukes and their commodities, all the rich people just have different words that you wouldn't hear in everyday language, like mumsy. What are the other words? There's a couple in there when they're at the country club.
1: Well, even Aykroyd says, uh, do you realize where I've been? Like <laughs> just his whole mannerisms and his speech pattern is he really embraced this role. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, when they're singing a cappella at the club about the girls, I mean, it's just silliness. Todd, the boyfriend, Todd.
0: Yes, the the, the little a cappella group. Yeah, that's great. And it's funny about Dan Aykroyd because this is something a lot of people don't know is that he's such a – good character actor again he may be I keep saying Eddie Murphy was like the best SNL cast member of all time you can make the argument Dan Aykroyd was he absolutely owned that that show when he was on it but it's funny because he plays this uptight you know the, I keep saying fop but this waspy fop and that's nothing like Dan Aykroyd in real life in real life he's like Canadian he drives a motorcycle he has a truck driver's license like he's into ghosts and paranormal stuff like he's nothing like Winthrop in this movie which is just hilarious
1: yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I like him because I met him and I was just struck by what a presence he was. So,
0: now what? What year did you meet him? What? What point of that? Would, was like '90s, '80s? Oh no, this would
1: have been, uh, I would say, five years ago.
0: Oh wow, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, recently. I've been in the reindeer business a while. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I have to think
0: of a reindeer movie we could do in the future. I could bring you back as a guest. I need some some insider reindeer knowledge.
1: There aren't that many good reindeer movies. <laughs> I think. Are there are there bad reindeer movies? There's Prancer. Uh, have you seen that one? It has. Uh, who's that guy who's in My Big Fat Greek Wedding as the, the husband, the boyfriend?
0: I don't know that one. You stumped me on that one.
1: Okay. See, there you go. I I don't know these actors by name.
0: <laughs> but you do know Prancer. You are familiar with Prancer, as it is the the bible for the reindeer industry.
1: Yes, it is the benchmark. It's the only. <laughs>
0: yes, those are the goalposts when you're making a reindeer movie.
1: Of course, you've got Frozen where you've got the animated Sven. So there are some, yeah. And Rudolph. And Rudolph, of course, yeah. But, yeah, look, we, we digress. These Christmas movies really get me going. Now,
0: that one was like stop motion. That must have pissed off your parents something bad that wasn't even a live reindeer in Rudolph.
1: Well, my parent, my family didn't get into the reindeer business till later in life, so... Okay. I, I don't think they have any problems with that. They did have a problem with Sven from Frozen because they showed him having uh, upper teeth, and reindeer only have bottom teeth. They don't have upper teeth, and that really bothered my mom. All
0: right. Well, I'm glad I'm glad we're here to set the record straight on that issue.
1: Yeah, I want to get animated reindeer teeth
0: corrected. Reindeer movies were calling you out.
1: Yeah, they don't have top teeth. They only
0: have bottom teeth okay, we've taken a strange detour from trading places here yeah, sorry <laughs> okay so so yeah so uh when Thorpe has been relegated to this poor street urchin he's being ra- nursed back to health by this hooker with a heart of gold you got Eddie Murphy as uh Billy Ray is now the the man about town he's in the newspaper and and apparently uh, What is it? uh, Randy Randolph uh, Duke, his his place in the bet has been proven here that that indeed it does look like nurture is more important than nature, that you can take any man and put them into a new position and they will they will thrive, which I think in psychology is pretty much been proven that nature is important. But nurture seems to be more important in the long run, except for maybe like identical twins, I think.
1: Yeah, I I don't know anything about that, (laughs) but definitely Randy was right. But uh, you you also had Eddie Murphy throw his party where he invited, you know, he went to the bar and took everybody home with him. Mm-hmm. And then we see him kind of evolving and starting to take care. He's worried about people putting out their cigarettes and not using coasters. So you're seeing that change in him where before he walked in and was stealing everything and dropping bases and not really caring. So you see a little evolution there of both characters. In the other, On the flip side, you've got – Dan Aykroyd, Louie over at the prostitute's house, you know, learning the value of stealing food. So they're they're definitely switching. I will
0: say probably my favorite part in this movie is they when the Dukes bring Eddie Murphy up to their uh, office for the first time and they're trying to explain to this guy how the business of food commodities work. And I'm I'm curious if you're gonna guess which moment is my favorite here. It's the uh, when they start explaining to him what pork bellies are and what they're used for. Do you know where I'm going with this one?
1: Yeah. Like bacon, like in a BLT? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> like that line? Yeah, yeah. The, the
0: Dukes explained to him, pork bellies, that's like bacon, which you may find in a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich. And Eddie Murphy just shoots a look at the camera, like, are you serious that you have to explain
1: to me what a BLT is? He looks at the camera a lot. I don't know if that's a trademark of his, but he gets away with it a lot. Okay, so let's see. So yeah, so we got the
0: whole. This is about an hour of the movie we've kind of gone through, where where uh, Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd have switched places, and then as we get toward the middle half of the movie, um, they kind of run into each other, and basically, basically, Winthrop is so furious that they've they've ruined his life and they've set him up and made him have this fall from grace that he takes a gun and he brings it to the uh, to the company Christmas party, which I'm guessing is not as fun as the McQuillan family Christmas. And uh, he brings a gun, and basically he's going to shoot them. He's going to shoot Eddie Murphy. He's going to shoot the Dukes, and basically it doesn't work out. And, and basically uh, what, what we're going to happen is here is is uh, Eddie Murphy's going to find out that this was all a bet and that they are they were playing him, and they just set him up to fail, and they gave him this life just as a bet. He basically overhears the whole thing in the, in the restroom that the Dukes have done this to him. And at one point, I think this is where Don Amici drops the hard N-word here.
1: Yeah. I mean, he's pretty racist throughout the movie. Yeah, these are horrible people, these Duke brothers. Don Amici, though, really. (laughs) And it's so out of character for him because he's not known for doing that. So, um, yeah, he overhears them in the bathroom talking about their bet and dropping the N-word and is is horrified because he's in there smoking pot, right?
0: He is, yeah. Daddy Murphy's in there smoking pot. He just overhears this.
1: So, uh, yeah. And that's when he decides to go look for Winthorpe.
0: Louis and this is really the, the, the heart of this movie. I mean, it, it starts as a comedy where everybody's life switches places, and you just get crazy things of Eddie Murphy trying to interact with this rich white society, and Dan Aykroyd just hanging out with, like, prostitutes and street hustlers. And then this, the last part of this movie is they figure out they've been duped, and Eddie Murphy basically tracks down Dan Aykroyd, and it's going to be a revenge movie from here on out. We're like, alright, they've set us up, they've ruined our lives, they're just rich assholes who do this for a living, let's team up and get revenge on them. And And Dan Aykroyd Winthorpe says, well, he pulls out a gun. I think we'll just kill them. And Eddie Murphy's like, no, I think the best revenge on rich white guys is make them not rich white guys. Let's make them poor white guys. And so this is going to be the the finale of this movie where they're going to basically undercut them with a big stock scam. And this is the part you may have to explain to me, Cass, because I'm not smart. Oh,
1: well, so back then before the Internet. They used to, the commodities, would have in January an agricultural report, which was not like on TV or anything like they show in the movie, but and it would show the state of agriculture and various commodities, and it would come out at the beginning of the year, and a lot of trading would go on based on that. So here we're talking about orange juice futures, so they want to know about how the oranges are doing in Florida, so that's going to come out in January, and... The, uh, the Duke brothers hire this guy, Clarence Beeks. He's the man who orchestrated this switch and everything. He's kind of their bad guy secret agent. And he's going to go and steal or somehow get this agricultural report before it's read on, on the exchange floor that day mm-hmm. so that they have a heads up so they can beat the market by understanding what's going to be reported. So Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd come up with a plan that they're going to go – switch out the agricultural report. Then we get into this whole situation where they're chasing down Clarence Beaks on a train uh, on New Year's to try to get this report that he is going up. He went to D.C. and he's going to bring it back to New York before the exchange opens and let the Dukes know. So they got to get on this train and somehow swap out these suitcases with the reports. And that's when we get into the costumes and the the black face and uh, <laughs> yeah. the uh the inga from sweden and all that excitement
0: yeah for people who don't know this movie this is this is the end of the movie where yeah it's it's insider trading right that would really be what's going on here they're getting the dukes are getting knowledge of what stocks are going to change and they're going to basically base their bot their uh, purchases based on the insider knowledge
1: yeah it It would be insider trading, although at the time it wasn't illegal because it was just a government report.
0: Ah, I didn't know
1: that. So – oh, you you don't know about the Eddie Murphy rule of trading? I had heard
0: about that, but let's save that for the end because they they actually passed a law in America based on this movie. So that's actually kind of interesting.
1: It is known as the Eddie Murphy law. But at the time, whoever got this government report, it wasn't illegal to get it because at the time so many people knew about crops. Like the farmers would know – Uh, various people involved in agriculture would know. And only the traders would need this report. So if you were gonna accuse someone of insider trading at the time for this type of commodity, you could accuse a farmer of that because he would technically know what was going on with the crops in the area. So they didn't have a law in place that it was against the law to use inside information on these types of commodities. So by getting this crop report, these traders, if they got it early, they would have the heads up, and that's why they wanted it, and they could run the market that day.
0: Okay. Did this also apply to reindeer trading?
1: There's not a big reindeer trade. It's not a commodity. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm glad that you actually answered that as if it was a serious question.
1: <laughs> but uh, there's no reindeer bellies. <laughs> but reindeer sausage is popular.
0: Yeah, just just the reindeer with the upper teeth. I think they're the ones that have the bellies.
1: yeah. So, anyway, they uh, so they want to get this report so they can use the information. And Eddie and uh, or I mean, Billy Ray and Louie decide they're going to swap it out and give them the wrong information and use the real information to their benefit.
0: Yeah, there's about 20 minutes here in the movie of it's a an extended kind of a, a heist scene where the day trader has a briefcase with all the insider knowledge about the, the orange futures, the orange juice uh, crop in America. And they basically have to swap the briefcase. I'm not really the biggest fan of this scene, this whole heist scene. Is this is this is this a scene that you like? I'm not sure how how well this one ages over the years. About 20 minutes of extended heist scene with uh, Rastafarians with blackface with a gay gorilla. Well, what else is in there? <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis doing a Swedish accent. Is this do you like this part of the movie or is this part dragged for you?
1: Well, as a kid, I liked it because of all the accents and the costumes and everything. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it doesn't hold up, but there's some great cameos on that train. You've got Jim Belushi as a gorilla. Mm-hmm. You've got Al Franken as a a stupid baggage handler, drunk baggage handler.
0: Senator, Senator Al Franken.
1: Oh, it's, okay. I didn't know what, what he's up to. I, former SNL character, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he was a – yeah, uh, SNL writer, became a, a very widely respected senator, and I think he just stepped down recently. But, yeah, he – it is interesting that he has this on his resume as the baggage handler in trading places.
1: Well, there were a couple guys from SNL in this – on the train scene, both the baggage handlers.
0: Yeah, Franken and Davis, yeah. Al, uh, Tom Davis was the other baggage handler, Jim Belushi, although I don't know if Jim Belushi was on SNL yet. He, he showed up in SNL right around 83 or 84. I forget if it's right before or after this movie. But, yeah, there's all sorts of SNL stuff going on. Although there's a really funny cameo in this movie I didn't even know was in there. Um, From the movie Airplane. You know Airplane, right? Everyone should yes. know Airplane. Yes, I know yeah. Airplane. There's the guy, Johnny, who's like the... The guy that just runs through and gives does little catchphrases and jokes in the tower. Rapunzel, Rapunzel. He's this really over-the-top guy. He shows up here in Trading Places as the, as the gorilla handler. He's like the guy that's giving Franken and Davis their, their uh, instructions. I've never seen him
1: in another movie. That's Johnny from Airplane. Interesting. Well, that's like the Frank Oz thing. He was in another movie as the booking agent. So there must, they must have running jokes in the industry where they're like, I'll run through and do stupid things or I'll be the booking guy. But yeah, the whole, it was quite the heist scene, but I guess they really needed some filler or just some excitement. I don't know why they did it. It's New Year's. I don't know why everyone's in costume on New Year's on a train.
0: Maybe that should be your family New Year's tradition. You should all take a train in costume.
1: And have have someone be violated by a gorilla.
0: I wasn't going to go there, but if you, I mean, it depends on how hardcore you are in celebrating the holidays.
1: Yeah, no, I, no, I think we'll pass on that one. <laughs> Yeah. Although I will say this, this was
0: probably a very exciting scene that made Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd very excited because they got to play new characters. And again, that's what I said earlier in the in the podcast that that's what they're known for. So Aykroyd gets to play Winthorpe in two different variants in the movie. And then here we get to throw him into blackface and he plays a Rastafarian. And then Eddie Murphy plays, uh, what's the guy's name? Uh, Nanja Ikabar, the, the, <laughs> from Cameroon, an exchange student.
1: Yeah, he's from Cameroon. I thought it was foreshadowing for coming to America character or something. Ah, yeah, it probably is. Which the Duke Duke brothers are in that movie, too.
0: Yeah, let's save that for the end. That's one of my favorite trivia things. Well, I'll mention that again at the end, but yeah. And then you have Jamie Lee Curtis in this movie, in this scene, where she plays a, a Swedish backpacker with a rucksack. She has to put a rucksack up, and her boobs, of course, make a prominent appearance. Although, I read some trivia that the only reason that her character is Swedish is because Jamie Lee Curtis couldn't do an Austrian accent, so at the last minute they just made her Swedish.
1: Uh, well, um, yeah, then she has her later and...
0: So there you go. So that's strictly 100% caused by Jamie Lee Curtis not being able to do an Austrian accent.
1: And what's with the beef jerky?
0: I couldn't tell you.
1: There's there's a lot of randomness going on here.
0: <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, you even get Denholm Elliott, the butler, gets to play an Irish drunk priest. So, yeah, everybody is playing crazy characters. And It's just a big heist scene, and it ends up with the bad guy Clarence Beeks being violated by a gorilla, which we'll kind of gloss over for now. <laughs>
1: Well, he gets yeah he gets knocked out. He realizes they're swapping out the suitcases and catches them and somehow gets knocked out by the other gorilla. And they throw him in Jim Belushi's gorilla suit and put him in the cage with the gorilla. And the gorilla falls in love with Clarence Beaks. Yes, it's very
0: touching from a romantic point of view.
1: It is. It's a little addition of the love story that was. <laughs> they needed more romance.
0: Yeah, in a movie that's seriously lacking in romance story.
1: It really is. Because Dan Aykroyd and Jamie Lee Curtis really don't have much chemistry.
0: They don't. And they, I noticed that the more I watch it, that their their scenes aren't especially heartwarming. And I think maybe they wanted them to be heartwarming, but they're not really. It's really just more about Jamie Lee Curtis in with her top off for the most part.
1: Yeah, they seem more like brother sister.
0: Yeah, and that doesn't fly.
1: But like I said, Dan Aykroyd's not a very good leading man. So as a romantic lead, I just don't see him.
0: No, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that if there is one thing that I'm sure the studio might have been disappointed with that they did not turn those two into like a romantic couple like they kind of do towards the end of the movie. You kind of have Ophelia and Winthorpe It it's seen that they are going to be a couple, but you never buy it. I'm like I don't buy for one second that those two are in love with each other. I think they're just they both love money and they both were a means to the end to get money.
1: Yeah, I think they tried to make it romantic, but hmm. they can, yeah, anyway, but that's not what the movie was about. Oh, but Clarence Beaks does call the Duke brothers with the incorrect information. So the switch did work. So before he is having relations with the gorilla, um, he did call the Duke brothers and say the crop is good. Or what does he say? It's bad. I don't know. So the premise is, is that there's
0: going to be tons and tons of oranges in this next year for the agricultural, uh, the agricultural yield's going to be big. So the orange juice prices won't be that high, but they basically lie to the Duke brothers and say, it's going to be very scarce. So it's going to be, the price is going to be lower. I forget what it is.
1: Oh no. They said that's going to be a bad crop, which would drive the price up. Yeah, that was it. But the truth was it was a fine crop. So anyway, so we get all that. So then we see the World Trade Center. Did you notice, notice that? That was weird. Uh, (laughs) and they're on the floor of of this commodities exchange and the Dukes are going crazy, uh, buying high because, and, and driving the price up and, uh, Winthorpe and Billy Ray Va- Valentine are there waiting, holding fast because they're the only people in the room. The Dukes cause a frenzy of buying activity because everyone sees the Dukes buying up all the orange juice, and they freak out, so everybody starts bri- buying really high. Uh, Eddie Murphy and, and Dan Aykroyd buy high also, but not as high as they do. Then they start selling low. And and what they're I guess the way commodities work is, You're not actually buying the orange juice. You're buying the contracts for it. So it's a contract for, you know, 30 shipments at a certain price in the future. You're buying that that day. So they actually buy a little bit high and then they start selling low, but they know it's going to drop once the report comes out. So they get all these contracts at a high price and then they sell. It's the opposite of what you would think goes on where you buy low and sell high. But you can work it in the reverse order. Um, so you buy for, say, a dollar fifty, and then you sell it. I can't explain it. <laughs>
0: I know nobody can. That's the problem with this movie. Is I, I've read reviews that a lot of people they know that the Dukes get screwed on these orange juice prices, but they can't explain how it happened, other than that the uh, Winthorpe and uh, Billy Ray somehow manipulate the system and make the Dukes buy all this stuff that at a horrible price, and they're gonna have to sell it at a, at a loss. Basically, to make a long story short, nobody can explain this movie. And I, it's it's other than you know that the Dukes get screwed, and they lose. The Dukes they say the Dukes end up losing three hundred forty million dollars and basically go broke. And so that's the revenge that they've lost everything and all because they tried to screw over the wrong guys.
1: Yeah, so they they lose all this money. They they think they're making a fortune. The other guys somehow work it, I guess. Okay, so they Murphy and Aykroyd sold their contracts at a dollar forty-two a share or whatever. And then when the real report came out. Mm-hmm. They start buying up contracts for twenty nine cents each, and everyone wants to just dump them so the other people are losing all that difference between a dollar forty two and twenty nine cents yes, and there's
0: a lot and lots and lots of shares, so like again, it adds up that they end up losing three hundred forty million so you can imagine how many shares were being purchased here and how how fast this crash happened that the dukes immediately lose all their money
1: yeah, so they they lose everything as soon as the uh u s d a Guy comes on the screen and said nothing's wrong with the crops. Everybody wants to sell. Mortimer and and Valentine stand there and wait, and then they start buying super low, and they know that they've made all their money. So uh, and we see uh, the Duke brothers even trying to run onto the floor, selling things frantically. Uh, so they end up they lose it all, three hundred and whatever million
0: basically, at the end of the movie, Winthorpe and Billy Ray, Aykroyd and Murphy have gotten rich. They are going to go retire somewhere way somewhere to like the u s Virgin Islands. They have all this money they made off this scam at the end. The Duke brothers have lost it all, and again, this is a a famous ending and and as again it's if you, it's funny if you read reviews and comments, how many people don't even really understand what happens at the end other than the dukes get screwed, but as Cass said earlier. This movie led to a law. There's an actual law in the New York Stock Exchange now these days, and it's called the Eddie Murphy Law based on this movie because they do not allow people to do that anymore. Can you kind of go into what the Eddie Murphy Law is? Well, it's
1: it's part of a big thing that changed, I think, in like 2007 or something. I can't remember the year. And all it says is you can't insider trade on commodities, so it's okay if you're the farmer and you know something, but these reports and these things. And it actually came after the Internet. So the whole commodities trading now, uh, it wouldn't go down. like There's not people out on the floor with pieces of paper anymore. Everybody's just on their computer looking at the computer trading. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's a totally different dynamic. And as we know, information is exchanged much more quickly now. So the law came along to protect information and avoid insider trading for commodities. But it's unlikely... That would really happen because you weren't carrying papers anymore on trains and New Year's. (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know why they couldn't just call with the information, why it had to be a piece of paper even back then.
0: I I also wonder why on the news they showed the henchman physically carrying the briefcase. He will be carrying this briefcase on this train at this hour. Like, was that would that really have been a news story back in
1: 1983? No. And I listened to that podcast today on this uh, for the financial aspect of it. And they said it was the most exciting thing ever to happen to the the orange juice commodities <laughs> traders, you know, and that they routinely are often either quoting this movie and it's, it's required viewing. So <laughs> it's, it's actually within this small group of commodities trading people. It's, it's a huge thing and they love this movie and they quote it. I could probably go to a Christmas party and get along great with them. <laughs>
0: well, especially if you brought some reindeers. Everyone likes reindeers at the party.
1: You think? What about uh, Dan Aykroyd dressed up as Santa?
0: If you could produce Dan Aykroyd at the Christmas party, you'd be the most popular guest there.
1: Hmm. I, well, I don't have his number.
0: Yeah, I don't want to change your Christmas traditions. I understand you have a delightful holiday tradition of the family gathering around, listening to Don Amici drop hard N-words, but uh, I don't want to change that.
1: That is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah.
0: I I cannot believe that... A, you saw this movie when you were that age, and it became a family, beloved family movie. And that B, like you've probably shown it to your daughter many times, which I I enjoy very much.
1: Well, I mean, she doesn't. You know, kids these days don't watch movies; they watch YouTube. So if if it's on the TV, they're not interested. So it's not like she, you know. I've actually had that
0: issue. I I'm constantly trying to introduce movies to my kids and my daughter. I have a little better time because she'll watch horror movies. She won't watch comedies. She won't watch dramas, but horror movies. She'll sit down for anything. My son who's 15. I cannot get him to watch anything on TV ever. He has no interest in movies, which absolutely dagger into my heart as the guy who hosts staff picks.
1: Yeah. Well, you're much more into movies than me. This just happens to be one of the few movies I've watched many, many times.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we end the movie and basically all the fortunes have been reversed. The rich people are now broke. These old guys are, they've collapsed their whole industry. They've run this financial institution for 47 years. They've lost everything. They're, they're broke. And this is leads to one of my all time favorite movie cameos. And you had mentioned earlier that they, The bat, the the rich guys at the end of this movie, the Duke brothers, who have lost everything, show up five, six, seven years later in the movie Coming to America with Eddie Murphy, and they make a cameo as their same characters?
1: Yeah. they They're in Coming to America as the Duke brothers, and you have Eddie Murphy, who's rich, actually gives them some money, and they say, now we can have a fresh start or something like that. I hope, I hope he gave them $5. Well, the... The bet, I don't know how much he gave him. I'm- I haven't seen that movie. They could see a movie. Oh, I have another interesting fact for you. A-, a person, Spencer Bledsoe, is a commodities trader. Oh, one of your friends, your good friend Spencer. Yeah, or he's a derivatives trader, which is future contracts. So it's very similar. He could become one of the Duke brothers one day. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Spencer is, uh, it's kind of an inside joke. I I was debating if I should leave that in the episode or not. But Spencer and Cass were on a specific reality TV show together where they were rivals. So I believe there is an an, an implied uh, insult there. So well done, Cass.
1: No, I mean, I just was like, oh, that guy, that's his job is trading futures. So anyway.
0: Is, Is he one of the orange juice guys? Is he one of the orange juice guys that loved this movie?
1: I don't know if he even knows about this movie.
0: Again, I saw Coming to
1: America. That was
0: the first Eddie Murphy movie I ever saw. I saw that in the theater in 1989, I think, 1990, 91, somewhere. And I remember that, that scene where Eddie is a rich pre, uh, rich African prince. He walks past these two homeless old white dudes in a park, and he gives them money, and they say, we can start over again. I had no idea that was a callback to this movie. It wasn't until I finally saw this movie that that reference becomes much, much more rich. So I appreciate that. You know, Eddie Murphy was in both movies. John Landis, the director, directed this movie, also directed Coming to America. It was just a wonderful little callback to Trading Places, and I just think it's one of, the, one of the neater cameos I can think in a movie of that era where they literally reference a movie from eight years before that had nothing to do with it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to be an Eddie Murphy fan to get that, I would think.
0: All right, so let's see. I'm going through some, through some other trivia here for people. Um, at one point, Cass said uh, at the t- at the end of the movie, they're going into the New York Stock Exchange, and Dan Aykroyd looks up, and they're at the World Trade Center, and there's a big, big, uh, nice, majestic shot of the Twin Towers. You're looking straight up them, and uh, this is a little trivia I read somewhere that right when they're, they're showing that shot, Aykroyd says, when you go in here, it's either kill or be killed. And I've read that when they show this movie on TV, they cut that line out because it's insensitive over the Twin Towers. Oh, so there you go. I can see that. Let's see. And uh, what other things do I have here? That uh, one, one, one of the other favorite things I have about this movie is that the way that Eddie Murphy's character will change his language depending on who's around him. And there's several scenes in the movie where he's going to start swearing and doing, like, his street hustler talk, but he'll consciously switch a word. Like, man, I know those, mother- those people. Like he'll change his words if he's talking to white people or talking to black people. He changes his language which is just a neat little, little, little kind of run, running gag throughout the movie that he has the ability to do that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot he's, I think this is when he was really good and really at the peak of everything. And he, I don't know if he's ad libbing a lot of this or, or how the how it was filmed. I, I
0: don't know about that. I, I'm assuming with Eddie they just kind of let him go, just let him do his thing. Like I'm sure it's scripted in one sense but he is such an ad libber and just again just so good and people don't know that he was a he wasn't just a movie star he was a stand-up comedian he was just the biggest thing around and i guess we should mention that like do you know many other eddie murphy's heavy eddie murphy movies beside this one
1: uh i i mean this one i've watched so many times but no not really i mean beverly hills cop i mean i grew up in the 80s so i saw all the movies but i haven't rewatched many
0: okay i just i'll just do a little rant here for people who are listening that It's one of the saddest things in movie history, what happened to Eddie Murphy, in that he was really the biggest thing in the world. He was the biggest movie star of my lifetime, him or really Arnold Schwarzenegger in the 90s. Those were the biggest things. Every Eddie Murphy movie was the biggest thing around. And then we kind of got up to the 90s, and he started to fall out of fashion. And that was the thing. Every movie he did in the 80s was a hit. And in the 90s, he kept kind of doing the same movies, and he started getting some flack. And there was... It really, I've I've read books about this. There's a really good uh, book out there called uh, "Life Moves Pretty Fast" by Hadley Freeman, which is all about '80s movies. And the standout chapter in that book is what happened to Eddie Murphy. And she, basically, I'm just going to recite what she wrote in her in her essay that, you know, he was the biggest thing around, and then he was getting all this pressure. Like Richard Pryor was mad because Eddie Murphy was stealing his roles. The Richard Pryor was the big star before Eddie Murphy, so he didn't like him, and Eddie you know, his it, that really hurt his feelings because Richard Pryor was his idol. So he had Richard Pryor coming at him from one angle and then people like Spike Lee and stuff were saying Eddie Murphy is such a big star, he should be doing more serious movies that have a message. And so Eddie was kind of getting hit by all sides and he kind of became out of fashion where he's just trying to make people laugh and do comedies and he's getting criticized by people that were his idols. And basically Eddie just took his ball and went home and said, you know, F this, I'm not doing this anymore, you guys don't deserve me. And that's really been his stance ever since. That he felt disrespected and underappreciated, and he never was the, as big a star, starting with about 1990, 92, somewhere in there. And really, he's just relegated himself to film to children's roles and animated stuff, just because he just didn't feel people appreciated what he did. And that's I do think it's one of the sadder things out there that that it just. We had a guy that was so talented and so generally good and funny and everything, and he just was not appreciated, and he just basically retired and gave it up just because he didn't feel the love. And so that's why I think it's important to appreciate these movies like Beverly Hills Cop, 48 Hours, uh, Coming to America, this one, Trading Places, just because this was Eddie at his peak when he was allowed to just go out there and be funny, and there was no pressure on him to do anything else.
1: Well, interestingly, in the in the DVD on the extra clips, when they have these interviews, Eddie Murphy, someone brings up the, you know, the the social commentary of the movie and tries to engage him, you know, into, you know, into saying something like he's trying to get a message across. And he says, hey, I'm just an actor. I just want to get in the role, do the show and then be done. He says, I'm not here to try to teach anybody anything or try to change the world. I'm just here to entertain people. And the interviewer keeps asking him questions and he says, I I just want people to be able to escape and go to movies and have fun and, you know, enjoy a movie. So I think that's part of that, probably the pressure he had. And I was kind of looking and I guess Spike Lee was one of the people who told him, hey, you need to you're so great and you're doing all this. You need to support black actors more. And Eddie Murphy just said, hey, I'm just here to, you know, entertain and make movies, not make a social change. So I, I can see how that happened after his you know peak of fame there
0: yeah it's just it gets it's sad the more you know about that because i know i hear this people say that's like whatever happened to eddie murphy and it is true he just kind of disappeared but there it's it's a much bigger and i think sadder story for people who know the truth and like you said it's all he wanted to do that's all he ever wanted to do was just go out there be a big star make people laugh and make funny movies and he did that and it's just one of those things i hope someday that he'll really get the credit for that i know in the last couple years they uh made an effort on Saturday Night Live to bring him out there. And I'm not sure you're aware of this cast, but um, the producer of Saturday Night Live, Lorne Michaels, he's run that show pretty much ever since 1975, but he took a couple years off. He wasn't there from 1980 through 85, I think. And those years he wasn't there were the Eddie Murphy years. And what happens is Lorne just does not acknowledge that as being part of SNL history. So you'll never see an Eddie Murphy clip online. You will not see any SNL retrospectives that include Eddie Murphy because Lorne Michaels does not take credit for that being really an era of the show. And that's even another thing that kind of a, a dagger into the Eddie Murphy heart where You won't even see a clip of him at his peak because it's been acknowledged that that didn't count as SNL history. So that's just this whole era of this guy being the biggest, funniest, most beloved comedian in the world. And so much of it is just kind of gone now.
1: Yeah, that's it is sad because he I mean, he was so huge back then. I never really thought of it that way. This was just always the family movie. I know. I'm sorry
0: to bring you down. I know this was your Christmas movie.
1: It'll still be my Christmas movie.
0: Okay. Our Christmas movie is The Christmas Story, so it's not quite as fun.
1: That's everybody's. Because they play it on that one channel nonstop, right?
0: Yeah, I I made a motion for it to be Bad Santa starring Billy Bob Thornton, but my wife did not go for that one.
1: Oh. Sounds like a fun household over there. No Eddie Murphy movies growing up. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's a whole different world than your your life of luxury you live, your your reindeer palace out there.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, I'm in Texas now, so... Snow reindeer. The burbs for me.
0: Okay, before we sign off here, anything else you wanted to say about Eddie Murphy, Jamie Lee Curtis's breasts, uh, Dan Aykroyd, uh, let's see, Randolph Mortimer? Anything else you want to add here about your beloved Christmas miracle movie before we sign off?
1: Um, I really enjoy the Butler-Coleman in this movie, too.
0: Did he did he get nominated for an award or something? I was looking that did up. and A lot of people thought he he stole this movie. I don't know. It might have been a Golden Globe or something. But there was. I remember reading some reviews saying that he kind of stole this movie and it was a big deal. There was. And for people don't know, the Butler is played by Denholm Elliott, who is uh, from the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies. He plays. Uh, I always forget the guy's name. He's Indiana Jones' second in command, like the the museum curator.
1: Oh, I can't remember his name. He was also compared at the time to the Butler in in Arthur. Do you remember the movie, Arthur?
0: Oh, yeah. This was the golden age of butlers.
1: Yeah, and he took a little flack for that, I think, at the time, that he was mimicking uh, that butler. But I thought he did great. So, anyway. Other than that, yeah, I mean, great cast. If you just Even if you just look up the cast, you'll be shocked at all the people who are in it. And then, I, I love Jamie Lee Curtis, but I have not seen any of the Halloweens, but...
0: You should see the first one. My all-time favorite horror movie without a drop of blood in the entire movie. It's, all, it's basically a Hitchcock homage.
1: Well, maybe we'll make that our Easter movie. <laughs> we can't make it Halloween.
0: Uh, well, what is your Halloween movie?
1: I don't think we have one.
0: All right, well, maybe some of my, my 20 listeners can write in for some inappropriate Halloween movie for the Cass McQuillan family.
1: It probably should be an Eddie Murphy movie, like The Haunted Mansion or something.
0: That's true. There you go. One of the Disney movies he did. I forgot about that.
1: Yeah, that's more up our alley than, you know, slasher stuff. Okay, and one last thing I do
0: have to mention about this movie is that uh, the director of this movie, John Landis, very uh, widely respected and famous uh, director. I don't know if you know this. He had a incredible fall from grace right after this movie. Are you familiar with why I am not familiar with why? Okay, some people may know this. John Landis directed the Twilight Zone movie in 1983, which was right before this movie. He directed the Twilight Zone movie, and then he did this one, Trading Places. And basically, for people who who don't know, there was a accident on the Twilight Zone set where the actor, Vic Morrow, was killed by a helicopter. A helicopter fell on him, killed him, and killed two child actors as well. And John Landis was later sued for manslaughter for allowing this to happen and he was acquitted but it really hurt his career he was not really considered a big mainstream director after that that twilight zone trial happened right after trading places came out so it's kind of one of these sordid affairs where if you want my personal opinion i think john landis should have been found guilty but he was he was let off it was it's a horrible story if you ever read about it the negligence on that twilight zone set
1: oh wow i knew a lot of people died on that set i didn't know the uh the background
0: of it yeah it was the vic morrow the actor from the bad news bears and then two kids and then it was alleged that landis put them in very 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 dangerous conditions and kept trying to make it more dangerous and it just it didn't go well so yeah it was unfortunately it was a a very bad uh period in movies right then and john landis was right in the middle and again this was his other big movie of that era so again i'll as we, as we bring down the podcast and lower the mood a little bit
1: yeah, thanks for doing that.
0: <laughs> well, there's your Halloween movie.
1: Oh, here is another, here's some more evidence that this is a Christmas movie. In Italy, Trading Places is shown on December 24th every year. Really? On a public public TV station, yeah. It's a holiday movie in Italy.
0: Still to this day.
1: Yes. Why Italy? I don't know, maybe the Rocky Balboa stuff at the beginning. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, these are my people, my Italians. I'll go. I'll, I'll, I'll ask around the grapevine. Maybe I can figure it out.
1: I mean, I don't know if to this day, but for a long time, it was a, a Christmas Eve movie there.
0: <laughs>
1: maybe, because, maybe they thought it was some famous American Christmas movie. I have no idea, <laughs> but I must be part Italian.
0: Well, there you go. Maybe, maybe the Italians understand the uh, commodity day trading ending better than Americans do. Maybe that's why.
1: Well, uh, I guess this is from the commodities people they feel this is a very accurate depiction of how it goes. So, economists are enthralled with this. <laughs> all right. And that podcast by NPR, I believe it's number 471 of Planet Money is all about the commodities market and explained by actual orange juice commodities traders who get very excited about it. <laughs>
0: I'm tempted to check that out. I am curious what excited commodities traders would sound like.
1: Exactly what you think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I want
0: to thank you for joining me, Cass. Thank you for stopping by and talking about your beloved family Christmas movie. And again, um, without you, I probably would not have ever seen this movie because I'm bad at going out back and catching up on Eddie Murphy movies. I always have the specter of my mom and dad hanging over my shoulder, telling me it's, I'm going to go to hell or something. So I'm very excited I have been introduced to this movie. And again, for my listeners, if you have any feedback, if you have any comments, if you have any movies you'd like me to handle in the future, you can reach me at staffpixpodcast.gmail.com. You can reach me at Twitter, at Mario J. Lanza. And again, until the next time I talk to you, I'll be out there searching for underrated, underloved, or Eddie Murphy movies that just need a little more love. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Penelope, do you realize where I've been since yesterday? Uh, They beat me up and stole my clothes. Those men wanted to have sex with me.